If you think more deeply about the religious perspectives that are in the world, um, and if, if you think carefully about it, maybe you've had these thoughts before, there are really only two. There's only two perspectives on spirituality. There is the perspective of works, and there is the, the perspective of grace. That's really all, all there is. The one dominates the world because it's our default setting. We want to earn our salvation. We want to do something for ourselves. And, and the other is, is the minority opinion, but it is always advancing. It knows no retreat. It's always gaining. But that religion of works is, is like what Buddhism offers. There, there are five precepts that Buddha advises abstinence from. Don't do that. Harming living beings, taking things not freely given, sexual misconduct, false speech, intoxicating drinks, and drugs causing heedlessness. And then the positive things are right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. These are all things to do. These are all things for Buddhists to do. And they were written by Prince Siddhartha Gautama. He's a, a fallible uh, human being. Or you could take Islam. You could take the Muslim way. There are five pillars of Islam, which include belief in God and his prophet. And obligations of prayer, five times a day. Charity, a pilgrimage in your lifetime to Mecca. You've got to get there. And that, and that religion is founded by Muhammad and his Quran. And then, and then there is Hinduism. These are all major world religions. One fundamental principle of, of this religion is, is the idea that people's actions and thoughts directly determine their current life and their future lives. One of the key thoughts of Hinduism is, is, is Atman, or the belief in the soul. This philosophy holds that all living creatures ha have a soul. Human beings do, animals do. And, and, and they are a part of the supreme soul. The goal is to achieve moksha, or salvation, which ends the cycle of rebirths to become a part of the absolute soul. Hindus strive to achieve dharma, which is a code of, of, of living that emphasizes good conduct and morality. Hindus reserve all living creatures and consider the cow a sacred animal. Food is an important part of life for Hindus. Most do not eat beef or pork, and, and many are vegetarians. It is a man-centered religion with multiple gods based on man's conduct. And so it is with Roman Catholicism. 
That's where I come from. Uh, that's where a, a significant portion of our church comes from. It is man-centered. They blaspheme. Makes me weep. They blaspheme Christ by inventing an imaginary place called purgatory so that man can earn part of his salvation because the sacrifice of Christ in their perspective was not enough. And, and they offer an unbloody sacrifice every Sunday through transubstantiation. All of these religions, all of this perspective of works does absolutely nothing for those who follow it. They're not changed. They're the same people. Nothing happens to them. They practice an external religion that does them no good whatsoever. It condemns them because the whole time they're doing that, they're rejecting grace. They're rejecting what has been revealed in this word. They don't want Jesus. They don't love Jesus. They, they, they acknowledge him perhaps as a prophet. But he's God manifested in the flesh. God was in a major. God was in the womb of a virgin. Something we would never invent or imagine. But all of these others do not change them. Doesn't change the person. Doesn't change their heart. A change is not even required. They don't even ask for a change. They just say, do this, and you will be saved. But then there is another one. It's where we find ourselves, at least the vast majority of us here. It's grace. It is understood by us as a spontaneous gift to God's people. Generous, free, totally unexpected and undeserved that takes the form of divine favor, love, forgiveness, and brings about a miraculous change that we get to share in the divine life of God himself and conformity to Jesus Christ. It really changes us. It, it makes us totally different people. Well, well, here's our first point then from this wonderful passage. This passage is all about grace. I want to show you that. I want to show you that gracious Savior who extends in the first place that grace gives an audience. He gives time to a presumably self-righteous Jewish ruler, a member of, of the Sanhedrin, who, who, who came to talk by night. The commentators suppose that he came by night because he didn't want anyone to know that, that, he, that, that, that he was coming to speak to Jesus. That's a good thing. I'm glad. But he was not bold enough to come during the day. And, and, and what were the Pharisees? What, what was the Sanhedrin? Here's grace extended. Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 23, 13, But woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. 
For neither enter it yourselves nor allow those who would go in. That's who Nicodemus is. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You tithe the mint and dill and cumin and have, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straying on a gnat, swallowing a camel. That's who Nicodemus is. He can't see. He's, he's blind. He's a blind guide. He's one to be pitied. He's, he, he's not one to be followed. Woe, in verse 25, it says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and, and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the outside of the cup and plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and, and hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, <laughs> which outwardly appear beautiful, but with, within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. For you outwardly appear righteous to, to, to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's mercy is being extended to, to uh, Nicodemus to have an audience, to have time, to have an exchange with Jesus. Jesus does not reject him. Jesus does not send him away. Jesus does not quote these verses to him that they came right out of his own mouth. He doesn't do that. Mercy on God's part I think you know this already. It's optional. God doesn't have to show mercy. God can still be God without showing mercy. He says, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy. It's up to him to show mercy. And when we show mercy, we're imitating him. We want to be like God. We want to be a merciful people. But he doesn't have to show it. But he does have to show justice. He must do that because he's a holy God. And, and he's got to punish sin. He's got no choice about that in the world that he has made. Fallen creatures, fallen angels. He's got to execute justice in order to vindicate his holiness and his righteousness. He must do that, but he doesn't have to show mercy. But, but here you have the first point, grace, grace to Nicodemus, who comes by night, who's a ruler, who's part of the Sanhedrin. He gets an audience with Christ. Point number two, grace gives Nicodemus, in verse 3, what he really needs to know. He comes to Jesus and he, he, he uh, says to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus sees from him that, Nicod that Nicodemus sees genuine divine activity. And, and, and he confirms that Jesus is a, a teacher. He, he calls him rabbi. He's never been to school. Uh, he's got no certification, but he, but he, but he calls him rabbi. But Jesus knows that affirming a miracle worker 
and an exceptional teacher is not enough. Jesus doesn't say, wow, great. That's a great affirmation that you've given me. That's, that's so encouraging to me. I wish more people would see in me that I'm a miracle worker, that there's no teacher like me. That's not what he says. He says, experiencing to affirm the supernatural of me is one thing, but to experience it for yourself is quite another. He has not experienced that. So, he, 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 he is no better than the devil. James 2.19 says, James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons be believe. There's no atheist demon. We've got professed atheists in the world. They're worse than demons because the demons do not deny that there is one God and they even shudder. They, they tremble. But what does Jesus say to him? He tells him what he really needs to know. It seems totally out of context. It would be to uh, Nicodemus because he came to admire Christ as a teacher and a miracle worker. Jesus answers him in verse 3. Truly, truly, with emphasis. He says it two times. Truly, truly. King James says, verily, verily, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He knows why Nicodemus came. He wanted to understand whatever Christ would teach him. He gives Nicodemus what he desperately needs to know. And there's no protest. He, he doesn't say to Jesus, that's off the subject. But he immediately tracks with the grace that is extended to him. And so point number three is that that grace continues as Jesus explains the heart of the matter in verses three and four. Jesus answered him, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. That's what he needs to know. And he explains it to him. You've got to be born again. You will never appreciate what the kingdom of God is. You can't even see it. You will never experience the blessings of, of the kingdom of God because you can't even see it. And Nicodemus reveals his earthly, earthbound, biological perspective. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in, into his mother's womb and be born? That's all he's got. He, he, he's earthbound. He's, he's a teacher. He's a ruler in Israel. And that's his answer. Uh, Jesus says in, in, in John 6, 63, it is the spirit that gives life. <laughs> the flesh is no help at all. 
In verse 5, Jesus answers him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of, of the flesh is flesh. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What does it mean to be born of, of water and the Spirit in, in, in order to enter the kingdom of God? To be born of water is not the physical waters of a mother when she's going to give birth and we say her water broke and we're, and we're happy. We want that. It, it's, it, it's, it's not referring, referring to baptism either. There's nothing about baptism in the rest of, of this chapter. That's not what it's about. It has to be linked to why Jesus is able to gently scold Nicodemus in, in verse 10 when, when he says to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? He, he should have known this. He should have known that w what the Jewish nation, what Israel needed to know was that we need a radical, radical change. We, we don't need to somehow become better. We've got to be changed completely. We've got to be born again. He, 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 he should have known that from Ezekiel 36 and verses 25 through 27. That's what he had. He, he, he had the Old Testament. He's supposed to be an expert. Here's what e God puts in Ezekiel's mouth. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols, I will cleanse you. That's the water. That's the water that Nicodemus should have known about. Clean water that would cleanse a person spiritually from all uncleanliness and to be cleansed from bowing down to images and idols, to stop your Baal worship, your worship of Molech, your your worship of man-made gods that can't hear, can't see, can't feel, can't walk. They have to be carried, made with human hands. He, he goes on to say, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is a radical, radical change that Nicodemus ought to have known and ought to have been teaching. The heart of stone means a dead heart that's unfeeling and unresponsive to spiritual reality. We've got some people in this congregation right now who are unfeeling. We've got some young people who, 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 who are unresponsive to spiritual realities. This is the heart that you and I had before the new birth. We couldn't feel. We could not perceive. We couldn't see we walked in darkness, and, and, and we were unable to apprehend, in a true sense of the word, spiritual realities. We could respond with interest and fascination and passion and, uh, and desire for all kinds of other things, but we had nothing. We had nothing for the spiritual world before... We were born again. 
Hallelujah. He has brought it to us. We are not the same people that we once were. This is what, what must change in order to see, to experience, to be blessed by the kingdom of God. We've got to have this radical change. We need a mysterious, miraculous change completely coming from outside of ourselves, wholly dependent upon God, His action to change our hearts. And that's what we've got. That's what He has given us. Flesh gives rise to one kind of life, fleshly life. The Spirit gives rise to another kind of life. The Spirit does not make us better. He makes us new. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. Every single one of you who can hear my voice, who is a new creation, has a before and an after. It's part of your testimony. You can tell somebody about it. I was once a liar. I was a thief. I was a fornicator. I was, I was abusing drugs. I was selfish. I was centered on me. I was a wretched, profligate sinner. That's, that's who I was. And then there's an after. I got Jesus. I got the Holy Spirit within me. I love other people. I want to be merciful. I want to give. I care. I want to sacrifice myself for the benefit of other people. I, I'm no longer a fornicator. I'm no longer a fleshly man. I, I'm no longer like that. I'll never go back. I don't want to go back. I want to go forward. That's what's happened. Well, that's what Nicodemus needed. Well, in the fourth place, then, there's grace. He gives him a gracious, common-sense illustration in verses 7 and 8. He says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you, you must be born again. The wind... The wind blows where it wishes. Everybody agrees with that. Can you control the wind? You, there, there used to be a song, Who Will Stop the Wind? Nobody can stop it. You can block it. You can obstruct it. But we hear the sound of it. But we don't know where it comes from. Tell me where it comes from. <laughs> I don't know where it comes from. Or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of, of the Spirit. That's what he tells him. And in, in this particular passage, uh, Jesus is, is very careful to use the formal form of the word, you must be born again. It's it's, it's, it's actually plural. This spoken to, to Nicodemus would be understood, not just him, but the whole Sanhedrin party of which he was a member. And it also carries a broader application to all people, everyone. Everyone who has any hope of getting into the kingdom of God must be born again. We've got to be born again. And the, the word wind in, 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 in this passage and the word spirit translate uh, from the same Greek and, and Hebrew word. This connects the mystery of the, of the, of the wind with the mysterious, even miraculous sovereign work of the Holy Spirit 
in a, in a sinner's salvation. That's what we've got. This is the greatest miracle that's performed here on, on earth. God interferes. He, 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 he interrupts our, our lives and changes us. That's what he does. That's what's happened. That's the only explanation that you have if you're a Christian right now. God did it. God worked a miracle. God caused me to be born again. God changed me. He made me a new creation. That, that's all you'll say. You'll not take any credit to yourself. It's totally a God thing. And our last point then, point number five, is that the grace is a sovereign grace. Do not marvel that, uh, that I said to you, you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of, of the Spirit. The Spirit, like the wind personified, he blows where he wishes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit is a recipient of sovereign grace. What, what does the Spirit wish for? What does he wish for? He wishes to fulfill the will of the Father from all eternity. He wishes to glorify the Son of God. That's why he came. Not speaking of himself, he speaks of Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 through 5 says this. Blessed, this is worship, blessed be God. Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us, listen, even though he has chosen us, he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. That's the love of God. I can't get my mind around it. God, God has loved us from all eternity. He, he has set his heart upon his people. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons to the Lord Jesus according, why did he do it? According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the Beloved. That's why when the Holy Spirit's work is finished, at the end of time, Jesus can say in Matthew 24, 14, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. E the, the teaching of e e election is a glorious, glorious thing. That's why Paul could say in Romans 9, 10 through 13, when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, Rebecca was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, this is right. This is holy. This is incomprehensible. Jacob I loved. Esau, I hate it. If you're going to choose one or the other by the virtue 
by the skill, by the social prowess they have. The mystery is not that he chose Jacob. Esau was a hunter. He was a man's man. He was, he was a macho man. Jacob was a mama's boy. He was a deceiver. He, 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 he was a liar. He was selfish. He wanted from Esau his birthright. He didn't love his brother. Esau just wanted something to eat. But you see, don't ever be afraid of election. It, it is the way of salvation. I can give you part of my testimony. When I was lost, I learned about the doctrines of grace. I was a Roman Catholic. I found out about election because Dave Inks told me about it. And he said, there's no injustice with God. We all deserve condemnation. And God in his great mercy has chosen a multitude which no man can number, and he's going to save them. He said, if a wealthy woman went into an orphanage and she didn't adopt just one child, she adopted nine children. Who would criticize her if she didn't adopt them all? No, she'd be right in the region section with a full color picture. Mrs. So-and-so ad 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 adopts nine children. I didn't like it. I, I didn't like the doctrine of election. But I believed it. I didn't like it. But I want to tell you something. If, 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 if you're lost today and you're not in Christ, I want to tell you something. You've been chosen. You've been chosen for many, many, many ad, ad, advantages. You've been kept alive to this very moment. You've been kept alive. God has not cut you off. God has not brought you out of this world. And, and I can say for Heritage Baptist Church, of all the young people uh, that have died when, when they were younger, they were all Christians. He, he didn't cut off one un, un, unbeliever. Jim Galdi said to me, I'll never forget it as long as I live, down there at, 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 at Sean's bedside, uh, just the two of us were, were, were in the room. He was looking at his son who was going to leave to be with the Lord. He turned to me and said, <laughs> he said, I'm, I'm glad it's not Samuel. My son is not saved yet just blew me away that he would have a thought about my son while, he's, while his own son is laying there. Wonderful, wonderful thing. But to be born into a Christian family, you've been chosen for that. At least one of your parents, most of you, both of your parents are. To have gone to a Christian school Many of you have had that advantage. You were chosen for that. To be in a gospel-centered, Christ-centered church where Pastor Mark Redfern never leaves Christ out of the sermon. He can find Christ in any passage that he preaches on. And you're hearing it week after week. You've been chosen for that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and, and to be the object, maybe you don't know this. We are praying for you. 
You're in the midst of people who pray for the lost young people in the church. You're the object of our prayers. If you're feeling any inclination right now, if there's anything within you that's leaning this way, if there's anything attractive about Christ, if you've heard of his mercy, his, his, his compassion, his kindness to Nicodemus, and, and you find out that you've got to be born again, if there's any leaning at all, act upon it. This may be all you get. You, you may not have another inclination like this in your life. How do you know you, you, you'll have it again? I'll tell you what it did to me. What e e election and predestination and, and p particular redemption, a limited atonement, all those things, it taught me I got to go to God. <laughs> it never stopped me. Don't let it stop you. Go to God. If you're not born again, go to God and tell him all about it. And, and tell him that, that you want to be saved. And, and, and you want to know Jesus. He'll not refuse you. Talk to God about it. I did that, and, and he made me a new creature. I was already a new creature when I was doing that. I just didn't know it. What a glorious thing. Well, here's just a, a, a few practical lessons uh, real quick. You just heard the first one. Don't let anything stop you from going to God. Any inclination, any attraction, any magnetism that Christ has, and you only feel a little tiny bit, act upon it. Do that. You see who, 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 uh, who the elect were, at least just, a, just maybe three or four illustrations in, in the Bible. He saved Abraham. Abraham was an idolater. He was bowing down to images. He gave him a new heart. He saved Naaman, the Syrian, he, he was a proud man. He wanted to be rewarded for all the gifts that, that, that he was bringing to the prophet. He saved him. That's the elect of God. He saved a Gergeshine demoniac who could not be bound by anyone. He was a, a, among the tombs. No one could subdue him. He had a legion. He had a legion of devils in him. That's anywhere between 5,300 to 5,500. That's a legion. When Jesus asked him, what was his name? He said, my name is Legion. He drove the demons out into all those pigs. That's right. And, and here is this, this man sitting there clothed and, and in his right mind. He saved Saul of Tarsus, who was bleeding, who was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of, of, of the Lord. He saved the persecutor of the church who, who, who called himself in 1 Timothy 1.15 that, that, that he said is a trustworthy statement discerning full acceptance that, Jesus, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I and the foremost, that's what Paul the Apostle said of himself. He saved at least one thief on the cross who was guilty of capital crimes, a repeat 
offender who turned to this emaciated, bleeding Savior, marred beyond human recognition. He, he was not going to set up chairs in a church. He wasn't going to be on the music team. He wasn't going to mow the church lawn. He had nothing, nothing. He turned to Jesus and he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He had no works at all, nothing. And what did Jesus say? say this day you will be with me in paradise. There's the mercy of God. There's the mercy of Christ. He, he does not refuse anyone. And concerning uh, an external righteousness, a life of exceptional good works, impeccable reputation, the esteem of, of many, all these things, extensive knowledge that Nicodemus had, and yet not to be born again is altogether worthless, isn't it? It's worthless. That, that is so sad, but, 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 that, but that is the truth. Uh, concerning righteousness, Jesus says in, 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 in Matthew 5.20 that, that there is another requirement for entering the kingdom. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and, 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 and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We must do better than Nicodemus. We must exceed him. We must have the righteousness of another. This is from Pilgrim's Progress. This is the pilgrim looking at, at, at the cross and, and, and what the subtitle says on this picture. He's wearing a coat that is not his own that was given to him. It's still warm from the back of the person that, that gave it to him. He's lost his burden. That's what you need. You need a righteousness outside of yourself to be clothed with. He'll give it to you. He never refused anybody who asks for it. He will give it to you. How glorious. How wonderful that is. Romans 4 says, Now to the one who, who, who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, Jesus Christ, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Hallelujah. The dangerous con uh, condition that Nicodemus found himself in, he, he was a natural person who does not accept the things of, of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But we have some, we have some indication. It, it, it's, it's, it's not a sure one, and, and, and the Bible doesn't tell us for sure. But in Mark chapter 7, we read that Nicodemus, who had gone before him, who was one of them, said to them, to the Pharisees, does not our, our law judge a man without first giving him a, a hearing and learning what he does? He stood up for Christ. In, 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 in John 19 and in verse 38, it says, After these things, Joseph of, of Arimathea, who was a, a, a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and, and 
took away his body. Nicodemus, also in, in verse 39, who earlier had, had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in, in weight. So they took, they, took, they took the body of Jesus and bound it they. Nicodemus and Joseph of, of Arimathea and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as is the burial custom for the Jews. So there is some hope. I won't be surprised though if, if I see Nicodemus in heaven. I won't be surprised if there are two thieves in heaven that the one immediately witnessed to the other of, of, of what Jesus who was already dead what, what, what Jesus told him I don't know here's a definition of, 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 of the new birth uh, defined from John 3 1 through 13 the new birth is a sovereign miraculous work of the Holy Spirit with, which joins us to Jesus Christ granting us the forgiveness of all our sins through his substitutionary work on the cross and imputing to us a perfect righteousness through his sinless obedience we become new creatures who are freed from the slavery of sin the habitual practice of sin and the, and the ultimate just consequences of sin. The, the new life uh, given to us enables us to receive, treasure, delight in, and follow Christ in, in holiness until we meet him and enjoy eternal life when our, when our earthly lives are, are concluded. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you with our whole soul and our whole heart for your having planned this wonderful redemption through the sending of your Son. We thank you, Jesus, for providing a perfect righteousness for us and for absorbing the just wrath of God for us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for awakening us from the dead and regenerating us and making us new creatures and indwelling us and, and, and producing your fruit in us. Oh God, we pray, let your salvation fall upon all here who, who are yet outside of Christ. Please, please bring your great salvation as we pray it in that matchless, wonderful, victorious, worthy name of the Son of God. His name is Jesus. Amen.